welcome to the English Subject Specialists Champions of Change podcast, brought to you by Educate and the English Association. Welcome to the second of four podcasts exploring how English Subject Specialists can be champions of change in their providers, across the world, with one individual student or anywhere in between. We've got four topics we intend to chat about in this series, but in this particular podcast, we're exploring English as a subject which helps individuals make sense of the world through their abilities in literacy. My name is Kate Hazelgrove and I work at the University of Derby as an FE teacher trainer. I also work for the Education Training Foundation through Touch Consulting and I was an English teacher in FE for about 10 years. We've got two English subject specialists with us today to uh, talk about this subject. The first is Helen. Would you like to introduce yourself, Helen? Hi, yes, uh, I'm Helen Clark. Uh, my background is secondary English, so English literature, English language, and I have undertaken a number of roles as a whole school literacy coordinator as well. Uh, I now work as um, a teacher trainer lecturer. Thank you so much, Helen. Uh, I believe you're also an advanced practitioner for English as well. At the Well, teaching and learning coach for English subject specialism, is that right? It is, yeah. Yeah, I've, uh, I've done that role for um, a couple of years now and thoroughly enjoy it. Thank you. Thanks, Helen. OK, so now over to Debbie, our second guest speaker today. Hi, I'm Deb Fawcett um, and my background initially was in secondary as Senko working in uh, special education needs in the mainstream. I've been working in the FE area now for about four years, where I teach English and maths uh, simultaneously sometimes. Um, and I teach students who predominantly have failed their English GCSE the first time around and need to resit. Thank you so much, Debbie. So we've decided that we're going to do part of this podcast in a thinking environment. Um, a thinking environment is a concept created by Nancy Klein, where we take it in turns to share our independent thinking after being asked a question. No one can interrupt each other and then you pass on to the next question. So the idea is that your independent thinking, um, there is nothing that, that stops that happening and nobody can interrupt you. So um, you know that you can stop and think for a little bit before you say, oh, it's, it's time to pass on. Um, the idea around this is that the quality of everything we do depends on the quality of the thinking we do first. And that was the concept that the client came up with um, at the beginning of creating the thinking environment. So the idea is that we have um, time to really think about what we say before we say it, like I say, because you're never going to be interrupted. You leave role, rank and ego at the door. Um, so everybody is equal as thinkers in that space. We always demonstrate an ethics of care at the beginning of any thinking thinking round, um, as our friends in uh, Joy FE have taught us. So the first question that we will ask is, is how are you? Which will be answered by Helen, Debbie and myself. We'll then be asking the question, what are your values as an English subject specialist? Which again, will be answered by each of us in turn. Following that, there'll be a discussion um, regarding our subject specialism, and then we'll finish the session with a freshest thinking round, which again, will take about, um, which will take about 10 minutes of us thinking about what, what we think about the content of the session today and, and kind of what we're taking away from it. So first of all, how are you? Uh, I am fine, thank you. 
Um, I am really excited to uh, be part of this podcast um, and to meet all the new people that I've met so far. Um, it's been great kind of um, nerding out with other subject specialists and um, really getting that kind of energy to um, like spur you on to the next thing within your own teaching and within your own um, subject. Um, Today I have done some teaching this morning, I'm going to do some teaching again this afternoon, so this is a nice little sandwich section here, um, and yeah, I'm just excited to be here and to hear what we're going to talk about today. Um, over to Debbie. Yeah, I'm also excited. Uh, it's the first time that I've done anything like this, so I'm also a little bit nervous about it as well, um, but as Helen's saying, it's great to be able to have a discussion like this to actually stop and have time to think about your own practice. Uh, life is always so busy um, and you sometimes feel in teaching that you are just moving on to the next thing. So it's great to have this opportunity um, just to share a little bit about where we are coming from and what our values are. So yeah, I'm excited and nervous, probably in about the same measure. Over to Kate. Thanks very much, Debbie. Um, so how am I today? I'm okay. Um, my daughter's in isolation, bless her. Um, so I have been a primary school teacher this morning and we have done some loads of creative stuff, loads of play in. Uh, we tried to make a tent, which was quite challenging. So, you know, I've been stretching and challenging myself this morning. Um, I'm very excited about doing this podcast. I've worked with Helen and Debbie um, in, in the same place, but in different contexts. And um they're both excellent practitioners, so I can't wait to hear what they have to say uh, about on this topic. So the next question that we're going to ask is, what are your values as a subject specialist? I'm going to ask Debbie to go first this time. OK, I think this is a good point, a good time to point out. I don't actually view myself as a subject specialist. Um, my degree isn't in English. I didn't take A-level English. Uh, I took it up to GCSE. Um, where I got a very average B. Um, so yeah, I don't see myself as a specialist and somehow uh, that's what I've ended up teaching. However, that has actually been really, really useful because part of my values teaching English is to see it from the student's perspective, is to put myself in their position. And because I'm not a specialist, because I don't have necessarily these high ranking academic skills in English, I kind of understand where they're coming from a little bit more. So it's about, for me, building their confidence, making them feel that they can do it, using all of the um, skills and resources they have around them. And that might be something um, as very, very basic as looking at how much they actually do read in a day, how many times they access things like Twitter, social media, explaining to them, working with them, saying that you actually do quite a lot of reading. Because when you ask them, how much do you read? How good are you at reading? The students that I teach, because it's, this is the subject that has perhaps been their nemesis, something that they've failed and often more than once, they'll say, I don't read. But when you unpick that a little bit, and that's something I always do right at the beginning, they read more than they think they do. And that's really, really valuable for them. Understanding that actually they do read and they can read and they do understand what they read and they make use of it um, all the time. So that's really valuable for them. I think also in terms of 
my own values, it's getting across that they're not failures. It's getting across that obstacle that they can do it because the students that come to me, because they're an FE, they have taken these exams more than once and they've written themselves off. So it's actually getting them to value what they've got to say and letting them just explore how they can read and how they can access their own literacy. So it's about bringing in some of their own talents. And sometimes the lessons don't necessarily look like English lessons. And to me, that's really important because they have had 11, 12 years of teaching in primary school and then in secondary school, and it hasn't worked for them. So it's got to be something different. It can't be the same classroom environment, stuff that they've done over and over again. So it has to be different and new and approach in a different way. So I think really that is my value system. It's about enabling them to see the value in what they can do already and approaching it in a slightly different way um, so that it isn't just, oh, here we go again. It's just like school. It's just another round of lesson after lesson. There'll be an exam at the end, which I'm going to fail. So it's about dispelling that sort of almost self-fulfilling prophecy that they have. Um, and if I'm lucky enough along the way, sometimes they even enjoy it. Okay, over to Helen. Uh, thanks very much for that, Debbie. Um, it's really interesting actually um, that your values are almost set against what um, what are perceived to be the values of kind of secondary school teachers. Um, and interestingly, I had as one of my values, perseverance and resilience um, to show that it's not about that end result, which an awful lot of society are hung up on. Um, it's not that end result, it's about um, the students and the learners being able to continue and to build their own confidence and their own understanding and comprehension within the subject. Um, so that's one of my values, uh, perseverance. Um, another one is that uh, kind of alongside that is that it needs to be um, exciting enough, different enough that um, it fosters some sort of curiosity in the learner because as soon as they're engaged and they want to ask questions and they want to know something about the subject that you're teaching, I think that's when learners really begin to want to do more and that's when they sort of forget that it's all about um, a, a letter or a number at the end of so many years of, of learning and they start to see it as something a little bit more um, a, a really important one for me is communication and being able to communicate in different ways and with different people and also understanding how to present yourself, whether it's um, verbally or whether it's writing something, responding to an email, responding to a tweet, something like that, um, how to do that in the best way that gets your point across, that is respectful and also that the learners can have some sort of cultural awareness as well in what they're doing in the digital literacy in responding to other people in the world that they are currently in in the world that they might be in in the future and seeing that um, literacy is a tool that will support them for their entire life and that it's not something that they just use in school it's going to be the thing that allows them to you know support their success and that communication for me uh, is really key. Uh, over to Kate. 
Thank you so much for that. Um, already so much to think about from what you guys have just said. Um, my values as, a, as an English specialist, I started out feeling a little bit ashamed that um, I wasn't brilliant at English literature. So I've got a degree in English. In fact, I've got a master's in English. Um, but I've never really been that into sort of your more complex literature. Um, and I felt a little bit ashamed about that. And when people asked me what a word meant and I didn't know, I felt a little bit ashamed as well. But as I've kind of grown into my um, my, ident my professional identity as an English specialist, I found, I found that really what my values are all about is, is social inclusion rather than um, academia, I guess. And that social inclusion can be at any, at any kind of level of education as well. So you had loads of room to... Um, help students to, to engage in different experiences and, and prepare them for employability and um, demonstrate loads of different contexts for them. And, and I think that's, that's what, what, really, what really made me love teaching English. And as I've gone along, um, English isn't everything. So I spend most of my time with English, supporting vocational staff, to be able to support their students with their English skills, not teaching English so that they can get the exam at the end, but more helping other people to help, the, help their students to access the stuff they need to access for their vocational subjects or just for, for life in general. And even at university level, I've found that being able to support students to be, to be able to communicate with, with us as their teachers, but as with their students as well, um, enables that kind of social inclusion as well as academic writing skills as well so it's definitely my my values all link to social inclusion and, and giving students a voice um, at whatever level they're at and including you know teaching staff who are nervous about supporting their students with their English skills because they've got their own sort of um, demons knocking about so that's where my values um, are in this and that leads us on quite nicely to the um, to the next question. So thank you very much for engaging in that in that thinking in those thinking rounds, um, Debbie and Helen. And now we're going to move on to a, an old fashioned discussion. So um, the question that we want to discuss as a group of people who have got very different backgrounds, but who've ended ended up working um, in similar environments. What does your specialism look like as a practice of enabling learners to make sense of the world through their abilities and literacy? So I'm going to ask Helen to start here by answering that question. What do you think, Helen? Um, I think that's a really big question um, to be able to kind of pinpoint. Um, so in terms of enabling learners to make sense of the world through literacy, um, I spent a, a number of years actually working um, in what is essentially an international school where we were looking at um, emotional literacy and cultural literacy. Um, and, and I think that that would have a really big impact on learners. Um, I've been thinking a lot about this question and I was kind of coming to the, the idea um, around, you know, we all know that knowledge is, is power. And we tend to think that we have all the knowledge in the world at our fingertips because we can just click on Google and we can find the answer to anything and everything. But I think we could perhaps become a bit complacent if we believe that that is all learners would need because we need to be able to show them that um, censorship 
is still happening in many countries throughout the world, um, propaganda even still going on. Um, so can we trust everything that we're reading? No, we can't. And should we trust it? No, we should be able to question it. And so I think that being able to um, support your learners to question what they're reading, what they're listening to, what they're seeing, and, and having um, a response to that and supporting the learners in whatever their response is, and then helping them to kind of mold that into something that they can use. Um, I think we've got this uh, world where everything is so immediate and there's that instant gratification of typing in a question and getting an answer straight away that we don't always put the effort in to kind of digging around and, and seeing is that really the best answer that we've got um, so for in my practice um, I want my learners to question what they're reading and I want them to say this is something I'm completely unfamiliar with I want them to look at something from another culture and to say I've got I've got no reference point for that. Okay, I understand. So what can we do then to find a reference point to build from it? And I think in in a in a world where there is such international travel and um, migration around the world, that that's really important to have um, an open mind about cultural literacy and to realise that although we can never experience everything that we're reading if we can show understanding and if we can show comprehension then we can show empathy and that's a really important skill to have. That's so interesting what you've just said about um, students having the ability to first of all find some literature on something but then also question it like you say so like think about um, kind of the, the kind of students Debbie's kind of talking about um, and how if you gave them something to research they might immediately go away search it very briefly and just just believe what they've they've come across and like Debbie said they barely ever read anything so when they do read things why would they question it why wouldn't they just think you know why would they look further if they can't actually bother to read in the first place so Debbie what do you think about this question yeah I agree we did um I took part in uh, a research project uh, 18 months ago uh, for the OTLA and that was the very thing we started looking at about how much reading our students actually did uh, and try and set up a reading culture um, and what was surprising I had assumed that they actually did quite a lot of reading on their phones given the amount of time they spend on their phone in lesson time and then that amount of time you see them looking at their phones as a reader I assumed that's what they were doing they were reading when you actually spent some time and spoke to them about it, actually, they were doing very little reading at all. They were watching videos, but even on a link of something that they were particularly interested in, they didn't click on the link if that contained any significant amount of text. Um, and I am talking about one or two lines of text. They just skipped past that. And when they were communicating with each other, they were using the emojis and the memes and what have you. They weren't necessarily actually writing and using literacy skills at all, which I had assumed, because that's the way I do it, that that's what they were doing. And that was a real eye-opener for me, that times have moved on, and the way that they make sense of the world is not the way that I make sense of the world. So when it comes to um, working with the learners, I think it's really, really important to take that on board, that they actually access information in a completely different way. 
to where we have been in the way that we have accessed it and traditionally have accessed it. So they may well, much more likely, access a podcast. So they're still using those literacy skills, but in a different format. They're not necessarily taking the written word. So what I found really useful in terms of practice is taking that step back initially from the written word, doing an awful lot of discussion. Helen, earlier you mentioned about communication as being one of your real values and actually communicating and talking. So you might give them an article, for example, um, a lot of my students are agricultural students. So I would get them an article on a particular type of tractor and it'll have lots of pictures in it, um, lots of small snippets of information. It'll have lots of sort of um, graphical information about the tractor, again, pulling in that information from maths, from engineering, from lots of different subject areas. But what there isn't on that sheet is a huge amount of text because that's the sort of thing that initially they're not going to read. So they're gathering that information and then we're going to have a discussion about it. Um, and certainly in the classrooms I work in, you start talking about tractors um, and it sparks a very, very lively discussion. Um, everybody gets involved. Everybody has an opinion. Before you know it, they're actually expressing um, quite complex opinions and justifying those opinions. And as Helen says, they are then picking out that information from the article and questioning it. And they say, well, actually, although it says it'll do this horsepower, in these conditions, it doesn't. And so they are pulling apart what they're reading and using their own view of the world, their own experiences, and judging how truthful that written information is. So that's really, really helpful. And at the end of the session, only after they've done all of that, you then point out to them just how much they've used their literacy abilities. Um, and certainly those students first coming into the classrooms are really quite surprised. Like, oh, oh, okay. And, and the fact again, that that's building their confidence that they can do it, they do do it, and they do it really naturally if you approach it from something that already makes sense to them. Give them a page of writing and you've lost them straight away because in their minds, they can't do that. And that's what's really, really important. You've got to approach it from a point of view where they can do it. They want to talk about tractors. Then you can explain to them just how many skills they've put into that discussion. And then you might lead on to a piece of writing, for example. It's like, okay, we're going to take this. We're going to put our own piece of writing. We're going to work as a group initially, because again, this idea of them doing it on their own for a lot of our learners is a little bit challenging. So again, putting it together where it's not purely down to them. It's not just their responsibility. We're doing it as a group. You've still got this banter between the Massey Ferguson's and the John Deere tractor lovers, and you've still got them bouncing ideas off each other. And before you know it, you've actually got a really comprehensive piece of writing out of them uh, that they can feel proud of. And that's really important at the end. And they won't necessarily tell you they're proud of it, but there's just a little bit of a swagger when they leave the classroom and they come back in next time with a little bit more enthusiasm for the lesson. It's not just, oh, here we go again. I've got to do two hours of English. They come back, sit down, ready to go. You know, Debbie, um, I absolutely love that you know two different types of tractors because... <laughs> oh, I know three or four even. Wow. So 
the fact that you um, know about that topic shows that you really care about your students. You've actually learned about this <laughs> in order to to engage with them. And I mean, contextualization is is nothing new. But what you've just said there that's really interesting is that you you get them to use their experience, and their knowledge to actually question the text. Um, which is a whole other level level of contextualization, which brings in those skills of, like Helen was talking about, questioning the world, not that one piece of information that you you come across. Um, and I was I was reading the Forgotten Third recently, um, recommended to me by Becky uh, from the EA Association, and um, in there it talks about developing a love for literature from a very very early age, and it's not about just being able to um, access that literature, but it's about as primary, you know, early years education about the, stu the, the students, the children, um, actually finding that that, like I say, love for literature that perhaps they don't they don't have at home for for various reasons. Um, so it's modelled by teachers, and it's really interesting that you've kind of you found a way to to bring that kind of concept into further education so it's it's finding a way to get them to actually see a reason to engage in literature to find something out um but I guess the question is how we get them them interested enough in reading in itself to look at other things as well um I'm just going to give Helen the opportunity now to um to answer this question again if there's anything else you, you you know you want to add about your practice of enabling learners to make sense of the world through their abilities and literacy um i mean as um as debbie was talking then um i was thinking about um those kinds of students those agric students that um their entire life and their passion is you know farming machinery and vehicles and things like that um, and I was just thinking about the importance of um, etymology and looking at root words and how they can then apply you know that to other texts um, which would help in that contextualization as we were talking about before um, the other thing that I thought about was um, there was um, a hypothesis by two um, linguists and it's uh, the sapio wharf hypothesis which was um, late 1920s I think it came out and essentially they found that if somebody in one language felt something experienced something and explained it in their language it was impossible for somebody in a different language to actually understand that and feel that same way and I just thought that's such an interesting idea that I don't know it's I mean it's a hypothesis it can be proven and disproven um but how do we as educators support our learners to understand things whether it is a complete different language or whether it is in English but our learners are so unfamiliar with the subject that it could be a different language you know how are we supporting that um, and I think that that contextualizing it and, and bringing in ideas of things that they're interested in something that they would like to do in their future some aspirations things like that and um, would all really help with that what do you think Debs <laughs> yeah absolutely um and certainly, like you're saying, to speak their language, that is something that I've I've just started sort of trialing really a little bit. Um, so towards the, the back end of last term, I was able um, to go 
literally into their learning area. So I came out of the English classroom and went to the farm, for example. I went down to the equine yards with the students that I'd had all that year. Um, and really allowed them to teach me about, again, about their world. So actually changing that context, but bringing it in um, to the stuff that we've been doing in English so that they can use their language with me. Uh, and that was a really, really interesting experiment because initially they were a little bit caught off guard. You know, what, what's the English teacher doing here you know, in, in our world? if you like, you know, the fact that I'd stepped out of the, the four walls of a traditional classroom. Um, but certainly by the end of the session, by the, they, they'd almost forgotten I was the English teacher. And they were getting, I think, genuine pleasure from teaching me about what was going on in their world. But what they were using, and perhaps they've always used it, I don't know, so it's, it's something quite new that I've done, but they were using quite complex language you know, quite complex ideas um, and things. And their explanations to me, this time I wasn't the expert, they were the experts. And they were changing the way they spoke so that I could understand it. And that's a real technical skill. You know, they were actually being able to adapt the way they spoke. It's different to how they would speak to each other. It was different to how they spoke to me in the English classroom. This time they were the teachers and I was the learner. And they were able to change their language and their methods of communication because they understood that I understood very little. Um, and I thought that was brilliant. I really, really enjoyed, first of all, learning from them because we all love to learn. Um, and I did, I learned all sorts of stuff that I didn't know before, um, but seeing them if you like, in their more comfortable environment and how they could blossom as well as bring on board the skills that we had learned discreetly in an English classroom. So I really, that was something that I'm really, really hoping to carry on in the next academic year um, is to find some time to get out into their environment rather than just do it in an English classroom. That's so interesting what you just said about um going into their environments and how they kind of find it a bit weird. And I mean, going back to teaching and learning, one thing that you need to be able to do as a teacher is to um, explain things in a different way if, if the student hasn't initially understood what you've tried to get across. And it's a it's a complex skill, as you say. It's, it's something that um, teacher trainers and, and observers see an awful lot where a teacher will just repeat, repeat the same um, instructions or description and it doesn't even occur to them to change the way that they're, they're sharing that. So it's really interesting that students did that. And like what Helen said about um, the way that we're trying to teach them something that's a different language to them. It's especially with the 19th century literature. I mean, <laughs> um, that really is, that's, that's complex enough for us to read, isn't it? You know, um, but it, it makes, it, it always brings me back to, um, how all teachers should be should be able to support their students in a certain element of their literacy development um and I, you know it's, it's starting to be recommended that teachers it, all teach training they're taught how to at least um support their students to learn how to read as fe trained tutors 
um I was, I, mean, I was an English specialist as I was being trained, but I did an FE PGCE and at no point was I taught how to teach somebody how to read. Um, and that's something we're absolutely facing at FE. And sometimes that's at, at levels that you wouldn't ever expect it at, um, especially from a 16 year old, it's quite, quite a shock sometimes. Um, but what, you know, what, what is being recommended is that all training teachers are taught how to teach English to a, to a point. Um, but also how to work with ESOL students as well. So going back to what Helen said, um, sometimes we're actually trying to teach them something in a different language. And it's how, how do you work around that without, um, without knowing how to do that? You know, it's a whole other specialism. So thanks so much for your contributions there. I'm just going to ask for um, a bit, probably a bit of a shorter discussion about how how our practice influences change because it's more of a summary really because we've talked quite a lot about about different elements that that do influence change um but debbie how do you how do you feel that your practice influences change for for individuals or for um for groups for people in your establishment what do you think um i would hope primarily the change is an increase in confidence um, and now that can be with the learner. Initially, for me, it is it is about the learners. So there is that confidence um, that they do believe that they can do it, because this this is the confidence that's been beaten out of them for whatever reason. They've really, really struggled in schools. They've perhaps spent more time outside the classroom than in it sometimes because of disciplinary procedures that have been applied to them. Um, so this idea that they can do it, um, that I'm not going to give up on them as well so that is a change because they are so used to teachers reacting in a certain way so if they misbehave they get thrown out of the classroom that's the way traditionally it is in a secondary school um, and sometimes they will go out of the way to make that happen because they are much more comfortable outside the classroom so that's one of the things that I'd really try and change with my learners very very early on when I get them in September it's like we're not doing that misbehave and I will deal with you, we'll deal with it, we'll work with it together inside the classroom. I'm not going to chuck you out and let you off the hook, if you like. This is something we need to deal with. You're young adults now, we're not going to run away from this. Um, so I think that's a change that happens um, and hopefully it happens quite quickly, that they realise that these old ways of behaving, perhaps that have become entrenched throughout the whole secondary school, won't work anymore. Yeah, I'm not going to shout at them. I'm not going to throw them out. So we need to find a way to work together. Um, so that, I think, is really, really important. Um, and I think building that confidence has really helped. So what I was able to do, um, again, as part of the OTLA project, was I took a group of students who, at the beginning of the year, were really not very confident in their reading at all. Um, and we went out to a primary school. And like you were saying about it, starting this love of reading, um, and I took them back to a time that they really enjoyed reading and they were confident enough to go into that primary school and share a book with a year two student, something that at the beginning they would not have, A, not been interested in doing, I don't think. If I'd have muted that idea in October, they'd be like, no, I'm not doing that. Um, but also a little bit worried, a little bit nervous about it. Um, so having that opportunity to go back to a time where they loved reading, where actually reading was a pleasure um, and seeing it like 
Helen was saying, seeing from the eyes of other people, seeing it through a different environment, seeing the, the reading through the eyes of those year two students and how excited they were about having a, a grown up, a different grown up, not just a teacher, but like a real, in their eyes, a real live grown up, somebody interesting to them, come and sit down and read with them. Um, so again, that was a, a change with a particular group of students that I noted. And they, both groups, the year two students and my learners really got something out of that. Um, so that was fantastic. Debbie, I knew about that um, that activity you'd done, and I already thought it was great because you'd taken the students into their context, hadn't you? They were health, uh, health and um, help me out here, health and social students. Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, childcare students. So I already thought that was absolutely brilliant. But just to hear the justification as to why you did it, that linked more to their English and their love of love of reading and taking them back there to a time when they absolutely loved it and to reignite that's that's just absolutely incredible and it's made my heart feel warm you're just telling that story how, how wonderful because uh, I know how much my little girl loves it when we, I read stories to her um so for them to see that I'm sure really was sort of change life-changing for them or you know um yeah wonderful so Helen can I ask you the same question about um how your practice influences change in this context yeah, uh, for me, it definitely starts with the relationship that I have with the learners, um, understanding them as an individual, um, their interests, what they perhaps struggle with, what they don't struggle with, um, and how I can best meet their needs is really important uh, because then it helps with all of that confidence that Debbie was talking about. Um, students knowing that I'm there to support them and because I want the best for them will help them to engage um, and I was really interested as well to hear um, that same story that Debbie was telling about the students going to like younger students uh, because I've been reading about um, you know the human library that um, was a like a, an international campaign uh, sorry a national campaign in Denmark um, and essentially um, instead of going and reading a book in a library, you would go and speak to a person about their experience. Um, and I just thought it was such a great thing to do. And of course, there are pictures of, um, you know, teenagers going and speaking to what looked like 300 year old people and, um, you know, striking up a relationship and discussing things. Um, and I just think that that, that relationship between the student or the reader or whatever we're going to call them and what it is that they're trying to engage in is really important um you know we've looked at um texts that are from the second world war for example you know we might have looked at um an extract from diary of Anne frank well let's widen that and let's put it into some context why was it written what was going on at that time and then there's um, a gentleman who's still in Leeds who um, is a survivor from one of the concentration camps so he would come in and speak to the students in school and then the students would get even more of that like that fire that interest and in the engagement right now I want to know more about it how does this work what happened how did it get to this stage um, and I think then once they've got that passion you know for educators it's up to us really to keep that going and to um to encourage it even more 
and to help them and build that confidence in that way. So they're doing all of that questioning and they're not afraid to dig a bit deeper and wonder why was it like this? Um, how did it impact on people? Um, then all of that moral development of the learner um, and like Kate was saying earlier it is about giving them all a voice and having that confidence and the relationship and the support and the the knowledge that we're not just focused on uh, an end result we want this person to grow and to get more knowledge and to be confident in themselves and then to have a voice and be able to communicate effectively in the world around them You know, that's just um, sparked off a memory for me when I was in uh, I was in sixth form and we had somebody come and talk to us about the Holocaust. And he was a Holocaust survivor. It was I can't remember his name, but the book was from Belson to Buckingham Palace. And it hugely sparked off an interest in the Holocaust and in World War Two for me um, that still hasn't stopped. I still read every single book I can find on, on both of those topics. And um the human experience is such a powerful tool for for sort of I don't know like creating that interest in literature in different topics um and it's certainly something that you two have both tapped into in order to to make change and to influence students and the human library absolutely sounds like an OTLA project in the making <laughs> sounds absolutely brilliant and I just yeah it's just made me think about how I can I can tap into this with my own students for IT uh, initial teacher training and and how maybe I can use that those those kind of those ideas that you've you've just shared with me on helping them to find an interest in English as well because it's absolutely about social modeling it's all about modeling for, for a teacher if they if they say that English isn't important if they say that uh, communication isn't important their students instantly think the very same um so for me it's it really starts from those teachers those teachers like like you guys who are those wonderful people in the classroom who really want to make a difference in those students lives so i think we're almost run out of time so i'm going to suggest we go on to the freshest thinking round now uh, so thank you so much for everything that you've said and the freshest thinking round is basically it's another um thinking environment uh, session where freshest thinking is just what are you thinking right now about what we've talked about so I'm going to ask Debbie to start this time so Debbie what is your freshest thinking um like you I've, I've never heard of the human library before um and it sounds absolutely fascinating so I am definitely my freshest thing I'm going to go and have a look at that um and hopefully use that in my teaching um I did it a little tiny little bit last year where I got a, a STEM ambassador in to do some um, mock interviews with my students, but I think I can really develop on that. So that is my next step, I think, is I'm gonna go and do a little bit of reading on the human library, and I'm gonna see if I can start building perhaps a little bit of a, a database of people I might bring in. So yeah, thank you for that. That's gonna, that's gonna give me something to work on in the next couple of weeks. So, Helen, what's your freshest thinking? Um, 
I am also going to do a bit of research. Um, I think I'm going to be looking at um, the book that Kate mentioned. Um, I know that you mentioned that last time. I think it was Becky as well that mentioned it, The Forgotten Third. Um, so I'll have a little look into that. Um, and then apart from that, there's like so much to think about now. <laughs> My mind is buzzing. Um, I really... Um, I'm really interested in um, what you were saying, Debbie, about how the learners are altering their language to suit their audience. And I wonder how we can kind of harness that even more to use, especially in those um, writing questions where you're writing for a particular audience. How can we use the fact that is it an innate ability or is it that we have taught the learners that we can use language in different ways for different audiences if it's something that they can do, which as you rightly say, is a really complex um, tool to use. How can we then sort of exploit that and make them feel even more empowered um, within literacy? Uh, over to Kate. Thank you so much. So my freshest thinking is, as I said, about how I can take everything that, that we've talked about and put it into initial teacher education um, at the university. But my main freshest thinking is just how grateful I am for you both coming along and doing this and um, thinking about it and contributing your thoughts and um, sharing your experiences with us, because it's it's just making it such a rich podcast having people from different experiences and, and with different um I guess job roles and and um passions and interests and the thing that is is screaming out every single time that we do one of these podcasts is that there is a thread that runs through this and it's all about the students and I just I just think that's that's amazing and I think you know you guys are here for just to develop your own um your own skills in order to be able to help those students and I'm just really grateful for that um I'm just going to say thanks everyone so much for listening and uh we hope you've got some stuff out of this that you can take into your own practice um and we hope you come along to the next one as well so thank you so much we hope our thinking has sparked some innovative thoughts around your own practice thank you so much for listening <laughs>